Psalm 119, the word of God says, teach me, O Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Let's take a moment, let's bow our heads and pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our time. Lord Jesus, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it speaks today, that it is relevant, that it has no need to change with the times, but it dictates the evil of the times and gives the believer certain grasp of history as you choose to unfold it. So thank you, Lord, for all that it entails and all that it wants to speak. We praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been looking at spending quite a time dealing with the idea of dispensations. Here's a reason why we do this. You don't have to turn there, but you can look with me real quick. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of... Uh-oh. Pen. And somebody told me red wasn't working. Is that correct? How's that look? Yeah. Not Kentucky blue, but we'll take it. All right. You've heard of the dispensation of God's grace, which He's given to me for you. Paul has a special calling, a special time that has been set aside for this. That by revelation, it's something that is revealed. There was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in brief. What is the mystery? That Gentiles are included with Jews in something brand new that God is doing because Israel has rejected their Messiah and He has placed them on the back burner of history, and he's brought forward the chili pot of the church and turned up the heat. That's what's happening here. So he says, verse 5, in other generations it was not made known. And remember this, this is past dispensation. So there are dispensations, times that God has used, administrations or stewardships that God has used in the past, a responsibility that he grants to people to be faithful with. That in the past, was not known like this one. So as God's understanding of history unfolds for us to get, we're learning more and more about Him. Now, at a particular time, this has been made known. And notice, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus because He is the pinnacle of this revelation. Jesus Christ our Lord. So, I've actually, if you notice, have given you a different definition of dispensation than what we've had, but so that you see consistency. A dispensation is a publicly ordered dealing of God with men in the administration of His ways in His house. Let me read it one more time. It is a publicly ordered dealing of God with men in the administration of His ways and in His house. There are four points that happen in every dispensation. It is a consistent pattern that is unveiled from the Word of God. There's a responsibility, some sort of authority that God has. He has all authority, but He wants to entrust it to people. When that authority is received, there is unfaithfulness that happens when testing occurs. Because of that sin, God has to judgment. But on the other side of this judgment, there is always the grace of God waiting to further His plan in some way. Every dispensation fits His pattern. So let's refresh real quick. Because we looked at the calling of Israel last week and the idea of the Abrahamic covenant. Let me give you the three points. Land, seed, blessing. The land belongs to the Jews. Period. God is not confused, though Wolf Blitzer might be. Okay? 
So it's important for us to recognize that it doesn't matter what a media personality or an anchor or a rock star, I always love it when Bono speaks to something. There's a lot of wisdom and intelligence there about theological matters. Um, the land belongs to Israel, period. It's God's plan. It's God's land. God can give it to whoever he wants. He tells Abraham, even though you're a senior citizen, I'm going to give you some youngins. And he ends up creating an entire nation out of these people. But he also grants a blessing. That blessing comes to fulfillment through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem of the dispensation of promise was that he said explicitly, I will bless those people who bless you, Israel, the Jews, but I will curse the person who curses you. And he finds fulfillment of that going on in Pharaoh. So it would look like this. The responsibility is bless Israel. They're God's chosen people. What's the failure? Well, Pharaoh enslaved them, murdered them, put them through hard labor. Not a nice guy. Moving through to judgment, God confounds them and destroys them in the sea. But then he has grace because he will redeem Egypt in the millennial kingdom. In the end, they will actually be called God's people. Now we come to the fifth dispensation. This is the dispensation of the law. The dispensation of the law. So we're we're five dispensations in on this. There's eight total. It says here, the dispensation of the law. Uh, Really great quote. The dispensation of the law can be distinguished from those that came before it in one key way. Here it is. It applies only to the ethnic nation of Israel, not all humanity. Recognize this. And and on your sheets that you've got there, I've got on the back of them, because I didn't have time to cover it today. we got a ton of Scripture. Everybody's going to have arthritis by the time we're done. It's okay. Um, But on the back of your handout, on the back of it, I have given you a very brief synopsis of why the law does not apply to the church. There are some people today that say, well, you're saved by grace, but if you really want to grow with the Lord, you need to start keeping the law. Trouble. Bad trouble. Why? Because you're reading somebody else's mail. That was sent to Israel, not the church. And there is a sound distinction in Scripture between the two. And as we're going to see today, it is Israel's failure and what they were commissioned to do by God that actually ends up bringing the church into existence and giving a brand new stewardship in place. So it's important I want us to recognize that. So here's a question that we ask. Number one, what is the responsibility? What's the entrusted authority to mankind? Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 19. We're going to read a ton of Scripture today, a lot of it. But you have to in order to get the full sense and flavor of what's going on. Now, some of us right now have dust pouring off of the Old Testament. Let me encourage you, dust it off often and read it always. We need to know who God is and how He works with people and what the unfolding of His plan is. And recognize this, you cannot understand things like Matthew. You cannot understand things like Revelation in the New Testament if you do not have a really good knowledge of your Old Testament. Know your Old Testament. It's part of the Word of God. So here we go. We're in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. Notice it automatically gives us a time. Egypt has been overthrown. Three months later, something happens. It says, on that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to Elohim. 
And Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel. There's your mail. Everybody see that? There's the address from God to Israel, everybody else off limits. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And they said, Yah, right? And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Does everybody see like this father taking care of the bully, come here child kind of? Does everybody see that here? That is the type of affection that God has for His people. Notice it says here, Now then, if, everybody see that? Which is a contingency. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Among all the peoples? Who are all the peoples, guys? All the people, thank you. Uh, Gentiles, that's the word I'm looking for, okay? <clears throat> but that's, a, that's, a, that's all y'all compared to the y'all of the Jews, okay? So, my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. That's what makes this an entrusted authority and a stewardship. It all belongs to God, He's the Creator. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So, verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. Now here it is. Everybody remember the if? Everybody remember that in verse 5? Yes, Jeremy, we do. Okay, great. All the people answered together and said, watch it, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do. Oh, gosh. Come on. Yeah, sorry. It is a unified, nationwide, verbal agreement to Yahweh's terms. Okay, watch this. And Moses brought back the words of the people to Yahweh. Now, skip forward to Exodus 20, verse 1. And while you're turning that page, let me explain this. The Abrahamic covenant of land, seed, and blessing is unconditional. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can mess up in the greatest way possible sin in the worst way possible, and God will still be faithful to His Word because the results in mind come from the origin of His person. He said it, He will do it, period. End of story. It might take longer because of disobedience, because God desires to work through people and certain people at that, but it will come to pass regardless. This is a different deal. This is more of a conditional covenant. We'll get to that in a moment. But here is a taste. The law mentioned in the Old Testament, first five books, is actually 613 different laws. But it can all be codified inside what we commonly understand is the Ten Commandments. Notice, then Elohim spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall not, sorry, you shall have no other gods. Does everybody see this? Why? Because they just came out of Egypt and that's all that was there were demons and false gods. Put all that baggage behind. That was your old life. Get this, church. 
you are now stepping into a brand new life of which I will supply for you. You've got one God. That's it. So, you should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Why? This is the second commandment. It's because an idol is reflective of the other gods. Out of Egypt worshipped their gods. They erected idols. We've all seen the Sphinx, yes? You've seen pictures of that. There you go. Or any likeness of what is in heaven. Notice, any likeness. No stuff about angels. Don't need to have that. In the heavens above or in the earth beneath or in the water that is under the earth. Now, take this to your uh, geology professor and see how he handles that, okay? Moving on. That's just a little tidbit. Nothing extra for that. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your Elohim, am a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. What? That sounds terrible. Fathers, if your kids get out of line, spank them. It's okay. It's not going to hurt them. You won't kill them. God sets the precedent for discipline in a disobedient situation. It's no different here. Don't let this shock and awe you. On the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, in other words, because you're disobeying God, you're setting up a precedent of legacy disobedience in your family. But notice what it says here. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not take the Lord, or sorry, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, in vain. For Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you. Did God give any land to the church? No, he didn't. Everybody see the distinction here? Very important to note. Notice, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, even his Porsche. You shall not. All the people, I guess if it was Jewish, it would be Dodge. Never mind, so. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightnings and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, I love this. They just heard God audibly speak the Ten Commandments to them from the top of the mountain. And here's their response. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not Elohim speak to us or we will die. Now, Either they went to a really great drama school at that point. Because didn't God just speak to them? Did they die? No. Does everybody get a sense, though, of how an encounter with God like that could evoke such an emotional reaction? To have God open His mouth and actually hear His voice, it might stop my heart. That's profound. Now watch what Moses tells them was a reason that God wanted to do this personally. He didn't work through anybody in this point. He wanted to address the people personally. Why doesn't he always address the people personally? Sin. Sin is what keeps us from a personal experience with Jesus Christ, period. Just as, as a board thing. So, notice this. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Easy for you to say, Moses, right? For Elohim has come in order to 
test you. It's a test. Does that sound familiar with the dispensation motif? There's going to be some sort of evaluation that's going to happen to test you in order that the fear of Him may remain in you or may remain with you. He wanted you to hear Him in such a personal way. He wanted to have this encounter with you so as to get your attention that to stray from Him would be a difficult thing to do. So He revealed Himself in a miraculous way to keep you on the path. He says here, why? So that you may not sin. That's how seriously God takes it. Now notice in just speaking that one thing to them, He's given them the Ten Commandments, rules to live by as they come into this brand new nation, the land that God is giving them for their inheritance. Here's how you're to conduct your entire social structure. Now we're going to see parallels of this, of course, to how we live today. In fact, nine out of ten of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament as people who are part of the church age. Only the one about the Sabbath is not repeated. So it's important for us to recognize it's not that we're we're disconnected from this and can't relate to it in some way. That's important to understand. But the idea is, is that God is making a defining line, making a mark in history because He's choosing His people and He's got a goal for them and their lives of which to respond to the rest of the nations. Now, it, when He goes through and He brings more of this up, take your Bibles, turn over to Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, I wanted to pull one verse from here that really sums it all up. Watch this. Then He took the book of the what? The covenant. What is a covenant? Sunday school people. Okay, I'll write it out and you can act like you knew it. There you go. It's a contract. It's an agreement. God is coming into an agreement with them in a very different way than what He's ever done before. Notice it says, He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Why? Because they want them to be knowledgeable of what you're signing. When you put your name on that line for that mortgage, you better have read the paperwork. Yes? Because you're now into a formal agreement. You're like, preach it, brother. Amen. Okay. And they said, notice this. Here it is. Here's the signing. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. As a nation, we are voluntarily bringing ourselves under the headship of the Creator of all things. It is His will, His way. That's it. Now why? Why did God want to enter into such an agreement? with them that we're going to find out is actually conditional in nature. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 4. We find an explanation of this. Deuteronomy, real quick, why is this book here? Number one, it's here to help us understand the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy. Deutero means second. Namas means law. It's the second giving of the law. The first generation that came out went to Sinai, received the Ten Commandments. We just read that. And then when they had the opportunity to go into the Promised Land, they sent spies and said, there's giants, we can't do it. We're going to get crushed. It's going to be a bad thing. No, we're not going to do it. Because of their disobedience and failure to trust God in that situation, He judged them to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And so now this is their kids, everybody who was 20 and under at that time. So now you've got the oldest people around 60 at this time, and they're receiving this from Moses before they cross over. And look, it's very revealing of what happens. Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verses 5 and 6. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my Elohim commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For, there's your causal conjunction, that is your wisdom 
and your understanding. How? In the sight of the people. Now, I'm going to give you guys a second shot. Are you ready? Who are the peoples? The Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, see? We're learning today. There you go. Now, remember this. That the Tower of Babel, the splitting of languages, was also an allotment to the sons of God at that time. And so there were celestial beings that were put over all of these Gentile nations. And once that happened, God then steps back from the world, leaving that supernatural stewardship to them. Not that he's not involved, not that he's not aware, not that he doesn't care. Recognize that. But then he pulls a people for himself out of Abram, calls him to go to a land that he's never seen, gives him blessings that are absolutely unfathomable, and starts a new things and says, Israel is my people. So he's working specially with them in this time. Why? Because the Jews are going to serve as a testimony to all the Gentiles. What do we see from the past dispensations? The thoughts and intents of the heart of men are only evil continually. We find out later in Jeremiah, you know this one because we, we talk about it all the time, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? And so now God is instituting a new dispensation that if people will just live by the law that He gives to Israel, Israel will serve as a lighthouse, a beacon, to everyone else that will be so attractive to them that they won't want to resist being a part of God's blessing and coming under that. So notice, it will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, the other nations, who will hear all these statutes and they will say, here's how the nations are going to respond when Israel's walking in obedience. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now notice, they're calling Israel a great nation. It says here, for what great nation is there that has a God, everybody see that? It has a God, little g God, so near to it as Yahweh our Elohim whenever we call on Him. How come these other gods that are supposed to be stewarding over these nations are not responding the way that Yahweh gets in there with the middle of them and wants to work with them all the time and love them and care for them and encourage them and build them up? Our God's not doing that. Hey, what's wrong with you, God? Get in line. Why can't you be more like Yahweh of Israel? Even they are going to be able to recognize the moral interactions and ramifications of this. He says, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous? You know what that tells me? Godless pagans can recognize righteousness when it happens. It has to be happening in order for them to recognize it. It's the same way here. Their statutes and their judgment are righteous. Is this whole law which I'm setting before you today. Now watch this. There's a warning. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart. There's the issue, always. It's always a heart issue. The stick-in-the-mud guy, it's a heart issue. Recognize that. The gossip, the relentless gossip, that's the heart issue coming out. Notice, from your heart all the days, we can't really see it now, there we go. From all the days of your heart, or all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. It is to be taught in the home. It's to pour over. It's to be a complete, entire restructuring of the way of life for the ceiling, boy, girl, grandchild, doesn't matter. It is to infect, saturate, permeate everything. Everyone's life in Israel is to be structured around God and His commandments. That's not too much to ask. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is conditional in nature. This means that when Israel fails to keep what God has commanded, He responds to them with discipline for their failure. Now we know that is part of the dispensation. 
But this can be understood as an if-then agreement. If Israel obeys, then Yahweh will bless them. If Israel disobeys, then God will curse them. They are still in this familial relationship. But there's a lot of friction and problems that will happen when disobedience occurs. If Israel obeys, or sorry, disobeys, Yahweh is no longer obligated to uphold his protection and prosperity of them. He's making it very clear. The previous generation agreed twice. We will do everything that God said. It is now being put before them again before they cross into the land of Canaan and take possession of it God's given them. They're in full agreement with it. Look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Verse 27. That's what he says. Go near and hear all that Yahweh our Elohim says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we will hear and do it. Don't just tell us the content. We'll get it applied. They're agreeing to it. Look at verse 28. Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people. That's Israel. They're agreeing to the terms of the covenant. Uh, Israel. There you go. Which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. And then all of a sudden you see that God has this beautiful hallmark moment because of their response. Look at 29. Great verse. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it may be well with them and their sons forever. If they just bring their lives into conformity of what I'm asking of them, the protection and the blessing is going to be phenomenal. Look down at 30 and 31. Go say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, speaking of Moses, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, and they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. So you shall observe to do, just as Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall not walk in all the way, or sorry, you shall walk in all the way which Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall will possess. Does everybody see the connection between obedience and the land? What does the land refer back to? Anybody remember? Well, Israel, yes, that's who we're talking to. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. The land is promised. It's yours. It's unconditionally yours as far as God is concerned. But if they disobey, the cost is the land. In fact, think about this real quick. Land, seed, blessing. Has Abraham had lots of kids? Good googly moo they have. Yeah. Tons of kids. The Jews, tons of people. Has God blessed the world through the giving of Jesus Christ? Yes. As Israel occupied the full extent of the land they were promised, all end times prophecy rests upon that one promise. Israel occupying the full extent of the land, as God said, because if they don't, God is a liar and we cannot trust Him. So all of prophecy rests on this concept of the land. So when you're reading through the Old Testament and you keep seeing land, 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 don't get bored. Recognize that God is laying the foundational work in order to get us to the book of Revelation. Understand what in the world He's going to do when Jesus Christ returns and He clears the land. Why does He clear the land? Because everybody on the land hates Him. 
Everybody on the land is taking the mark of the beast. Everybody on the land is following the Antichrist. Everybody is a Satan worshiper at that time. Recognize that. And when Jesus Christ returns through the clouds, he destroys opposition. It actually says that they turn to fight him when he rips through the clouds. I don't understand that. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? And then I realized they're godless Satan worshipers. That's what's going on. They think they can actually take him. Jesus Christ rips through the clouds. In fact, he doesn't just rip through the clouds. He rips through the sky. Do you guys realize that? It says the sky rolls up like a scroll. There he is. Da, da, da. I am not turning a gun on him. That's crazy pants, man. It's like that happens and your first inclination was, let's shoot that. It must be. must be. You know they are if they got a can of snuff in their pocket. Okay, moving on. Though the Mosaic Covenant is conditional, we must not make the mistake of thinking that Yahweh is demanding perfection. That's what we do. We look at this and go, wow, they expect Israel not to get out of line. This has got to be absolutely perfect in order for it to be effective. Let's not run the risk of thinking that. Because when we do that, we get into legalism. We get into the idea that unless you perform in a certain way, God cannot love you. That's not what he's asking for at all. A, the call for sacrifices presupposes the occurrence of sin among the people. The means for atonement due to failure was prescribed along with the statutes to be upheld. In other words, when God gave the commandments, we have the entire book of Leviticus that is commissioning priests to be the intercessors between God and man and to offer sacrifices, and that's part of the law. If you expect perfection, you don't make a provision to take care of when people mess up. You see what I'm saying? So the fact that we even have a, why am I reading about burnt offerings and sin offerings and grain offerings and wave offerings? Because God knows that Israel's going to blow it. And He's giving them the opportunity when they blow it to rectify the situation in a way that He's prescribing because it all leads to the atonement of Christ our Savior. So He's setting all of this up to paint a grand picture. But there's also a second part of it. While in Egypt, the application of the Passover blood established a relationship with Yahweh. Everybody remember that? The death of the firstborn is going to happen. Some of you remember the old movie, Cecil DeMille movie? Edward G. Robinson, right? God's going to get you, see? That guy? Everybody remember him? And what happens? they got to come out, they sacrifice these lambs, they get a, a basin full of blood, and they're out there and they're painting their doorposts. Why? Because when you apply the blood, death passes over. It's the same for us. When we hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose from the grave, and we believe that, we have now taken the offering of the blood and applied it to our doorpost, and death passes over us. So every Israelite that did this in Egypt was now brought into this eternal relationship with Yahweh at that moment, and a relationship is established because of the blood. The next part is, is keeping the statutes and ordinances allows for Yahweh to have unhindered fellowship with Israel. Or let me say it this way, because this sets a precedence for how we understand it in the church age. No one is saved by works in the church age. This is why you've got to be careful with the gospel. Jesus did all the work, we hear about that work, and we either believe or we do not believe that work. Having believed it, we accept it. When we accept it through faith, all those grand benefits are now applied to us, but it's never, if you really want to be saved, you better start doing this. 
When that happens, you look at them and you say, no! Because they've just corrupted the gospel. And they're trying to bring you under law-keeping for acceptance. If it's not by grace, it's not the gospel. However, once you get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, does He want to change your life? Does He want to give you a new way to live? Good grief, His Son died and rose from the grave in order to signify in us there's a brand new way to live that you don't know. And He died to give it to us. He raised so that we can live that type of life, that He can live His life through us. Well, notice it's the same here. Applying the blood, they're set free, a relationship is established. But now that we're out here, there are some things that I'm going to put before you that are all good things. Nothing in the law is bad. All of it's great. But I'm going to put this in front of you and it's absolutely going to change your life. And if you'll hold fast to it, I will pour out massive blessings on you that you would never think possible. Israel's already an accepted people because of the blood of the Passover. That establishes a relationship. But loving obedience will let them experience blessing. That's what it is to have fellowship. So what's the failure in this situation? Go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is probably one of the most important passages of, of how you can understand the rest of the Old Testament. We're not going to read the entire chapter, though I was tempted for us to do that. <clears throat> but I'm going to try to sum it up for you and show you what's going on here. Chapter 28, this is getting towards the end of the book. Moses is wrapping it up with the people. They're ready to go into the promised land. He is the last one of the previous generation that has to die before they can cross over. Moses did not make it to the promised land. He was not faithful to the end. That's important for us to recognize. So it says here, verse 1, Now it shall be, What's the word? If. If you diligently obey Yahweh your Elohim, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, Yahweh your Elohim will set you high above all the nations of the earth, the Gentiles. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey Yahweh your Elohim. And then he proceeds from verses 3-14 through 14 to give all of the blessings that will go down. Here are some of them. Blessings regardless of where they dwell in the land. Blessings of offspring, produce, livestock, flocks. Blessing of daily sustenance. Blessing in travel. Blessing of protection from enemy. Blessing of their barns, their agriculture, and their land. Blessing of exaltation among the nations. And blessing in order to be a blessing to the nations. Now, down at the end of that, notice verse 13 and 14 of 28. Mark it well in your Bible. Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail. Anybody in here want to be the tail? No, I didn't think so. And you only will be above. And you will not be underneath. If, everybody see it? Conditional aspect. If you listen to the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim, which I charge you today, to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left. Here it is. To go after other gods. There's the problem. Why? Because those other gods will lead you in sin just like those nations were led into sin. Notice, to go after other gods, to serve them. Verse 15, but it shall come about, and here's the flip, if you do not obey Yahweh your Elohim to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you to overtake you. You guys ready for this? You should read this all the way to the end. It's insane. If they don't obey, God, we don't want anything to do with you. We're not going to do that. We're going to serve other gods. Here's what's going to happen. Cursing regardless of your dwelling. Cursing of your offspring, produce, livestock, flocks. Cursing of your daily sustenance. Cursing in your travel. Cursing 
uh, of exposure to sickness and enemies, cursing of your barns, agriculture, land. You'll actually have mental illness, infection, and insecurity. It will, he will now allow adultery, violation of property rights, oppression, injustice, slavery, foreign invasion, stress, idolatry, captivity, hard labor for little return, pestilence, spoiled produce, diminished status and influence, in financial straits, dispersion, foreign invasion and war, cannibalism, divisive marriages, plagues, chronic sickness, perpetual fear, discontentedness, and absolute worthlessness. Now here's what's interesting about this. You say, man, that's a lot. God is clear. Everybody see this? If you obey, it's nothing but blessing. If you disobey and go after other gods and serve them, it is God's hand against you. Why? Because he's mean, vengeful, wrathful, and has a problem. No. It's because he loves them so much that he's spanking them to try to get them back in line. God is very, very clear about this aspect. Do they lose their relationship? No, their relationship was blood-bought. They don't lose that. Do they lose fellowship and intimacy with the Lord? Yes. Sin causes anyone to lose fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. That is a biblical precedence. So now, look at Deuteronomy 28.45. This one was important to point out because he has little pit stops along the way where he's unfolding all these cursings and he'll say something that's provoking. Verse 45, So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. And the idea of that is laid low, not wiped out to never exist again. Because, here's the reason why, because you would not obey Yahweh your Elohim by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His commands as He commanded you. Does everybody see? I know it's repetitious, but is everybody getting the point? Okay, look at twenty-six or sorry, 46 and 47. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever because you did not serve Yahweh your Elohim with joy. Notice that. It wasn't like, man, we got to keep these laws. This is really terrible. I hate my life. It's not. It's one of joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. In other words, all God wanted to do was give, 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 give. The problem is, is that after a while you didn't want. Now pause. Why would somebody not want the continual blessing of Yahweh over their nation at all times? Why? What causes that? Let me ask you this. Why do you disobey the Lord now? Well, sin's what happens. But what's the motive? Selfishness. I want what I want, and I want it. Man, we're all well trained in this. Microwave theology. If it ain't heated up in 30 minutes, it doesn't matter. Real quick, short story. I had a revolution in cooking when I married my wife. And the reason is, is because my philosophy was, however long it had been sitting in the fridge, you just add a minute on the microwave. So if it had been in there for five weeks, how long do you cook it? Five minutes. Everybody see how that works? When my wife moved in, she let me know that wasn't true. Now, be honest, guys. Before you were married, was that a truth for you? Was that a truth for you? Yes. Thank you for being honest, guys. There's two of us in the room who really love the Lord, because we're not liars amongst the congregation of the righteous. Okay. It is a miracle of God that I'm alive. Okay. Period. So, what is the judgment? What is God's necessary response to their sin? Leviticus. 
Leviticus 26, if you get a chance to read this in your quiet time maybe, it sums up the situation perfectly. Turn back to your left just a little bit. You'll go past numbers and you'll arrive in Leviticus going backwards. Leviticus 26. verses 32 and 33. I will make the land desolate. They disobeyed. I will make the land, this is God talking, desolate, so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. Do you realize that that's actually true in history? You can do research on what the land of Israel has looked like between about 120 A.D., up until around the, the end of the 1800s, because that's when Jews started to all of a sudden come back into the land. They just all of a sudden one day started coming, and I think it's because God was drawing them to this point. That land was horrible. In fact, if I recall correctly, Mark Twain has written down some things about his travels when he saw the land of Israel. He's like, why would anybody want to live here? This place is a dump. This is awful. No one can survive here, and yet what is it today? Strongest air force in the face of the world. Possessors of the Iron Dome. Amazing, innovative, incredible. God's doing something. He's back in the land. Notice this. I will make the land desolate to you uh, so that your enemies will settle and be appalled over. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you and your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. When they disobey God, what's the big thing they lose? The land. That's important for us to know. Because by that, we lick our finger and we hold it to the wind of prophecy and we know what's happening. Are they in the land? Or are they not in the land? That's important. Now, the Jews scattered among the nations. When all this happened in ex between Exodus and Deuteronomy, that 40-year period, now you had the testing period. When they come into the land under the headship of Joshua in this situation, were they going to keep the law or were they going to not keep the law? And that's the reason why we read the Old Testament is we watch the unfolding of their disobedience and not remaining true to what was mentioned in two things in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus chapter 20. That's it. And you can understand everything moving on for that. In fact, let me say this. When you deal with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, just so you know, Israel split in two after the reign of Solomon because of his disobedience. He brought idols and demons into the land and set up altars to them all because of some ladies. I love you ladies. You have a sway over a man's heart that I don't even begin to understand. So make sure the lady that you marry is a Christian one so that she'll slay you rightly. Okay? Making sure we move on with that. If she doesn't slay you for God, she'll slay you against God. Recognize that. So, whenever you have the prophet show up on the scene, all of a sudden you're, you're reading along in your Bible and you're like, Isaiah comes out of nowhere. Here's Jeremiah, here's Ezekiel, here's Daniel, here's Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all these people, they start coming out of nowhere. Why are they there? They're there because they're taking Deuteronomy 28 and they're laying it down over their present historical situation and they're saying, here's where y'all got it wrong. Repent. They're using Deuteronomy 28 as a grid. You're not being blessed, you're being cursed. And here's where you are in the cursing. Recognize that God has already made you fully aware. Know His Word and repent. It's not any different how we would call a wayward believer back. So the kingdom, northern kingdom, went quick. They set up false gods, 722. Assyria comes over, takes them out, takes them away into captivity. 
The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer, Judah, but they were taken out in three separate campaigns here. This last of which included, who we would understand, Daniel. And they went to Babylon. There was a return from exile roughly in this time. Nobody can really pinpoint for sure when it happened, but they came back to the city. This is one of the reasons why we read the book of Nehemiah when we see what transpires to build up the walls and to bring them back into the city. There's a destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone is going to remain on this temple. It's all going to come down on this house. It's because the Romans took it apart brick for brick, stone for stone. Then by 120 AD, the nation was completely scattered. And if I recall correctly, the barbarians took over, which later became the Germans. It says here, May 14th and 15th, though, after 1,800 or so years of not being on the scene at all, in 1948, Israel's declared a nation again. But it wasn't until the Six Days War, June 5th through the 10th, that Jerusalem, the center of all existence is Jerusalem, recognizes this. How do we know that? Because it's where Jesus Christ is actually going to position His throne and sit down and rule from there with a rod of iron during His millennial kingdom. He didn't choose anywhere else. He will not be in New York City. He will not be in Chicago. He has no dealings in Texas as far as his regal placement goes. When he comes back, he places himself exactly as David did in his reign because he fulfills prophecy perfectly and he will reign from Jerusalem. That's where this will happen. So this is the center. Now, what's interesting is, is that in 2027, not too far away, is it? We're going to come up on the 60-year anniversary of when Jerusalem was taken back. The next thing to happen in prophecy is the rapture of the church. I don't want to be a date setter. Not at all. But I think it's important for us to recognize is that, yes, 1948, very important date. Absolutely important. But they didn't have possession of Jerusalem. In 1967, they took possession of their city, their capital city. And in doing so, that caused the prophecy time clock to really start speeding forward. Recognize, guys, we live in the end times. Now, do this with me real quick. We've got some time. Unfortunately, they put batteries in the clock back there. Um, when I worked so hard to take them out. Uh, Matthew 21. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Because the dispensation of the law stretches from Exodus 20 all the way to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That entire time. That's a lot of Bible to have consumed in the dispensation of the law. This passage we're going to look at unfolds Jesus' recounting and foretelling of Israel's response to truth, while also unveiling the consequences of rejecting Him as their promised and long-awaited Messiah. What is the judgment that takes place? This is still part of the failure but Jesus is going to demonstrate what their failure has been, will be, and the judgment that's going to take place. So he tells them a parable. Verse 33 of chapter 21 of Matthew. Listen to another, what is it? Parable. You, if you're somebody who marks in your Bible, a really good move would be to write the word genre right before it. G-E-N-R-E. This is the genre you're dealing with. What is a parable? A parable is a story that Jesus is going to tell because he has a main idea that he wants to pair alongside a truth that he's desperately trying to communicate. So the illustration is meant to leave such an impression on the person that it's undeniable what he's talking about, 
and it will not easily leave them because of it. Listen to another parable. Uh, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Everybody get the picture? Takes the time to clean up the land, establish all the stuff. He builds it all of his own. He rents it out to somebody, and then he's gone. Notice it says here, verse 34, When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Verse 35, The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his who? Son, is it starting to make sense to everybody? Sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard. Remember, Jesus died outside of the walls of Jerusalem on Golgotha. Important to recognize the parallels of what they're painting here. They cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, here's Jesus' question. Remember, real quick, he's, he's talking to Pharisees. It's important for us to understand. The leaders of the nation of Israel, he's talking to them. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? I love that they answer. They said to him, that's the Pharisees, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Now, who's guilty of doing this? Who's going to kill the Son of God? The Jews. Watch this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says to them, verse 42, Did you never read in the Scriptures? Now, I love that. Now, real quick. Hold on to your hats, okay? Jesus is being totally smart out of this. And here's the reason why. Number one, he has a spiritual gift of sarcasm. But number two, He has no problem holding up in front of their faces. You know the truth, and you're missing the truth. It's one of the greatest sins we could ever make against God. We know what He says, and we're doing the opposite knowingly. The Pharisees had the Old Testament memorized. Front and back could recite it in their sleep. So He draws their attention. Don't you know this verse? Don't you know this passage? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from Yahweh, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you know that Jesus is the stone, and the builders are Israel, and they are rejecting Him, yet He is the most important, pivotal stone for your existence ever. You're casting away your stability. Look at verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, now watch this, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Jesus announces the postponement of the kingdom of God. This is why I'm so adamant that the kingdom of God does not exist here in any way, shape, or form, spiritual or otherwise, in any way. That is a false belief. Jesus pronounces, number one, the kingdom of God was meant primarily for Israel. Number two, he's letting them know, I'm taking it away from you. It will not come in this time. 
His message when he showed up on the scene was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's not talking about his death, betrayal, resurrection, any of that stuff at that point. He's telling the nation of Israel, accept your king. You need to repent from what you're doing. I'm here to bring the kingdom. Instead, they kill him. Instead of welcoming their king for blessing, they kill him and invoke cursing. What does God do? God removes the kingdom from that present time and he sets it on the back burner. Now is not the time for it. Now, I will say this. If you've heard me teach this passage before, I have a correction in what I've told you before. The more I've prayed about it, the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied it in context. Everybody see where it says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. I don't think this is the church. I think this is speaking about the people of Israel in the future, the faithful remnant that he will bring forward. So if you've ever heard me teach this at church, I recant and I repent in dust and ashes. I Acme Packers jersey, it's okay. But in doing so, this is speaking about a future hope for Israel in this. Look what it says, verse 44. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whom it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What does Israel lose because of disobedience? The land. The greatest revelation that they ever could have had was the Word of God in flesh. And when they had the conversation, what should we do about His arrival? The conclusion was, let's slay Him. That's the heart. That's the failure in this dispensation. Why? They were to be a beacon to the nations. They were to proclaim the goodness of the Creator to the nations. And instead, they got involved in idolatry, ended up killing and even eating their children at some point to such gross immorality and sexual immorality with pagan practices and all kinds of crazy things that when God, God gave, did them a solid here and sent them the greatest revelation they could have had, which was the person of His Son to die for their sins, but their promised Messiah they've been waiting for. And they rejected that too. There's nothing left but judgment to happen. Verse 45, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, they understood, they fully and thoroughly comprehended that he was speaking about them. That's scathing. The leaders had spoken for the nation, and the Messiah was vacating the nation. Now, what is the grace? Is there grace in this? There is. Romans chapter 11. You guys have done well. Thanks for sticking with this. I think we're on slide like 604. Good. Romans 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are dispensational chapters in the book of Romans. Romans 9 speaks of Israel's past and God's dealing. Romans 10 speaks of, of Israel's present situation at Paul's time with Israel. And Romans 11 speaks of the future time for the nation of Israel. So I'd ask you to start in verse 1 of Romans 11. What is the grace involved? I say then... God has not rejected His people, has He? Who are His people? Israel. Notice what He says, may it never be. This is a double negative in the Greek. It's the strongest way that you can say no. Spanish translations have no way, Jose. Okay? Don't get offended. Stop it. Four, I too am an Israelite. Notice He clarifies what He's talking about. A descendant of Abraham even knows the tribe he's from. He's got all the heritage clout that you could ask for. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, who He knew beforehand. That's what the word means. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? 
how he pleads with God against Israel. Everybody remember? Elijah's kind of running for his life. He's scared to death. Jezebel's after him. Everybody remember that lady? Boy, she's a catch, isn't she? Right? It's a bad situation going on. And so he quotes from that. He's going to use that and apply it in the situation. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Why would he apply this to here? Watch what happens. Well, watch the divine response to him. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now watch, he's going to interpret why he applied Old Testament Scripture to this New Testament situation. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time church dispensation. That's when Romans was written in the church dispensation. A remnant. A segment of believing Jewish people who are part of the church. So that God has not cast away Israel. He's not done with the nation. He's not put them aside. The church is not the new Israel. No. God has always ensured that there would be believing Jews in the Messiah at any given time in history. A remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace can't be grace if works are involved. So in God's gracious plan for all the ages as He's unfolding it, He is guaranteed that there will always be believing Jews of which to keep the hope of life for the people to come back into the land and for God to fulfill all of His promises. Skip down to verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Israel did not stumble. They did stumble, but not in such a way as to where they would fall, to be completely cast away from God's plan. Did they? He says again, double negative. No way, Jose. But by their transgression, because they sinned in violating the covenant and messing up the dispensational requirement, salvation has come to who? You and me. Their sin, God was able to use regardless of how horrible it was, and He opened the floodgates that you and I could know Jesus the Messiah. He's able to take absolute devastation and tragedy and disobedience and wipe it all off as bad as it is and all the consequences that flow from that and turn around and overflow in grace onto an incredibly undeserving, and let's be honest, as far as God was concerned the Old Testament, a predominantly ignorant people. We didn't have special relationship with God. He didn't give to us the law. He wasn't revealing patriarchs to us as Gentiles. We're out there building fire just trying to keep warm and catch deer sometimes. That's what we're trying to do. Some of you get that. Moving on. So notice why. Look at this. To make them jealous. I have a permanent relationship with Yahweh Elohim because of Yeshua, the Mashiach, that was promised to the Jewish people. Everybody knows Jesus' real name is Yeshua, yes? Notice that. I have that. I'm a Gentile. A Jew could look at me and go, you don't deserve that. You're right, I don't. It's by grace. Well, how did you get that? God graciously gave it to me. In the midst of all of your sin against not keeping His statutes and His laws and His ordinances and refusing to participate in fellowship with Him, He's now taken that and overflowed it on me. And I'm part of a brand new thing called the church that he's doing at this present time. It has a mission that we'll discuss next week. But all that privilege has come in. Well, how do you have a relationship with the God who's supposed to be the God of Israel? 
because his son loved me and gave himself for me. That's why. It's nothing on me. There's nothing favorable to look at at me. There's nothing favorable to look at with you. It's all God's grace making it available in this present time. What is the fourth dispensation law? How do we sum it up? The responsibility is Israel's to live in fellowship with Yahweh Elohim. Fear God and keep His commandments. What's the failure? Well, idolatry. And ultimately, the killing of the promised Messiah. What is the judgment? Dispersion from the land. The destruction of those who killed the landowner's son. It's a parable that kind of encapsulates that. He says in, in Matthew 23, your house is being left to you desolate. He tells them, you will not drink of this vine again until you all say, until the nation will proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's when Jesus will return. What is the grace? Well, first, salvation has come to us. Second, there's always a remnant of Israel that will be preserved according to the word of the Lord. So here's a question that we always ask. Can mankind govern well in a state of law? How did Israel do? Horrible. They failed miserably. They needed rescuing over and over again. And remember, the evidence is, are they in the land? Are they not in the land? Guys, they're in the land. And this tells me that in our day and age, God's bringing the end. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for making yourself known, revealing yourself clearly, not hiding or holding anything back, but instead bringing to our attention. We would just read your word, just crack it open. You've desired for us to put it all together to understand how you're working at any given time and how all of this sets the stage for what you will do in the end and bringing all things under the authority of your Son. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he makes all things right that He takes everything that was out of joint and He lays it straight. Please bless our time in the Word. Please bless our thoughts in recognizing the grace that's been shown to us to be the church, to be something brand new that You are doing. Father, we are an incredibly blessed people. Let's not become hard-hearted. Take that for granted. We have sin before You. May we confess it and repent today. May we agree with your word and where we are wrong. We've never taken the time to pray for Israel. May we do that today. And pray for their peace. And that we would pray for the hastening of our Messiah. We lift all this up to you and we praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor, I have the mic. Yes, sir. Question. Yes, sir. If the Pharisees had never crucified Christ, our sins would have never been atoned? If that were possible. Even if, even, okay. Hypotheticals are dangerous. Only for one reason, because it didn't happen that way. But number two, even if Israel would have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, he still would have had to have died because there was no sufficient sacrifice for sins on the face of the earth. The sins of the Old Testament were to set a precedence for what Christ would do, and it was meant to simply cover the sins that were committed. But the interesting thing about Jesus' blood is that because it's perfect, it wipes away the sin of every person, whether they believe or not. If they believe in Christ, His payment is now applied to them, and they are given eternal life as a free gift. But Jesus paid for every sin of all time, ever. So yes, good question, Laverne. Good question.